Hey there, this is Pastor Corey, and welcome to the Branch Life Podcast. After you're done listening, I invite you to connect with us at branchlife.church to make sure you're up to date with everything going on at Branch Life. Want to share what you heard today? Subscribe to our YouTube channel and share this video with someone you want to encourage. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope that this presentation helps you connect with Christ and challenges you to reach those around you with the good news of Jesus. Well, as we uh, get ready for tonight's topic, let me turn your attention to this little uh, buffer before the message. 7.6 billion. Now that's a big number. That's how many people there are on earth. In the U.S. alone, estimates say that out of 328 million, there are nearly 246 million lost souls, men, women, boys, and girls that don't know Jesus. Those numbers seem big, but what if we were to focus on the number one? The Bible tells us that heaven rejoices every time one person comes to know Jesus. What if we were to focus on the daily conversations, those everyday meaningful interactions for Christ that can truly make an eternal difference in someone's life? We can reach our nation with the gospel. We can reach the millions. We can reach our friends and family and neighbors by starting with one. Who's your one? Well, welcome to Branch Life Church tonight. My name is Josh, and I'm one of the pastors here at Branch Life, and I am glad that you have joined us this evening. Uh, Tonight, if there is a cheer along the way, I'm going to assume that the Eagles have scored, right? So, uh, So please don't cheer too loudly so some of us who are recording the game can go home and be a little bit surprised. If you are following us on live stream now, I realize that this is in competition with the game. So wherever you are in the world, I'm talking to you, everyone who's watching on Facebook Live. Just pause the game, and uh, we'll get back to it here in a little bit. What we have to share tonight is important, and uh, we hope that you guys will lean in and talk tonight. Have you ever wondered why uh, Christians are so weird? I mean, if you're a Christian, you got to admit that you're, you're probably weird. Like, we are pretty passionate about having these conversations with someone who's not in the room, right? Like we're talking out loud to someone we can't see. That's a little strange. And we are always bringing up God, and we're always having conversations about God, and we're always inviting you to church, and we're always missing things like football games to go to church services. That's weird. That's not normal. Why, why do my Christian friends, maybe you've asked yourselves, why, are they so, why do they want to talk all the time about this stuff? Why is this, this something that they care about and they bring up all the time? And then they, they want me to agree with them. I mean, that's, that's crazy. Why are Christians so weird? The reasons Christians are so weird has to do with this phrase that we're going to be talking about tonight. And from God's word, we believe that this is a truth from Scripture that then helps us organize our lives and prioritize things and do some things that would be weird. Now here's the truth that we're going to talk about tonight. Everyone spends eternity somewhere. We believe as Christians that everyone will spend eternity somewhere. Now the topic that we're going to talk about tonight is a heavy one. We're going to be talking about hell We're going to be talking about eternity, and I do not want to have this discussion. It is not something that I enjoy talking about. It's not something that I like bringing up. As a matter of fact, if I was someone who just wanted to pick and choose from the Bible certain things to talk about and certain things not to talk about, this would be on the top of the list of something that I would kick out of the Bible. And I'm in good company. There are other theologians and preachers in this world who, when coming to this conversation about hell, would freely admit it's a difficult one for them. R.C. Sproul would say that of all doctrines in the Bible, the one that he has the most difficult time with is the doctrine of hell. C.S. Lewis said that, again, if he could take an eraser to Scripture and erase one thing, he would erase this conversation about hell. For many people who reject God and reject the truth of the Bible. The basis of their rejection is simply on on this discussion. 
How could there be a loving God who would take creatures, his own creation, and condemn them to a place called hell? If hell exists, I don't want to believe in that God. And of all arguments against Christianity and of all arguments against faith, for me personally, that's the argument that resonates the most. That's the argument that I, as a young believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, as someone trying to wrap my, uh, wrap my brain around this faith, had to wrestle with on my own. It's not something that I could just accept. It's not my parents' faith that was passed down to me or my pastor's faith that was passed down to me. I had to wrestle with this as a truth and ask myself, is there really a God? Is there really a, a place called hell? that God would send people to. And if that is true, do I want to follow this God? Hell was the thing as a young man that caused me to first consider my eternal destiny and my spiritual state. And when I got saved, I got saved because I was scared. And so tonight we come into this conversation and I want you to, to, to lean into it and just realize that that it is a heavy topic, and for some of us here tonight, this is, this is a hard thing to think about and listen to, and I, I pray grace over this conversation for you wherever you are at in this discussion. And we're going to just present the truth of God's Word, and I want to share with you right off the bat what it is that has resolved it for me, what it is that has caused me to accept this very difficult truth, this very difficult Christian theology about an eternal place called hell. And the reason that I have chosen to accept this or to believe this is summed up in the name Jesus Christ. You see, if Jesus never died, and if Jesus never rose again from the dead, then I would be able to reject the conversation about hell. But because Jesus lived, and because he died, and because he rose from the dead, I then have to consider everything that he said as truth. Because if it is true that Jesus is the Son of God, that if Jesus is a part of the Trinity, that if Jesus is God himself, then the things that Jesus taught come from God. And they are true. The reason I believe in a place called hell, and the reason we're going to talk about it tonight, is because Jesus taught about hell. Jesus talked more about hell than he did about heaven. And I believe in a place called hell because Jesus taught about hell. So tonight we want to ask ourselves this question, and again, it's the con in the context of the conversation that we're having, who's your one? What did Jesus teach about hell? What were the things that he brought up? Now, as I've studied this topic over the years, and I've, as I've dove into the depths of this and, and traveled through scripture on a, on a lot of different ways. I have been surprised by some things I thought would be taught about hell that maybe weren't. I have, I have had to readjust my thinking and my scheduling and everything that I think about hell, I believe, comes from the truth of God's word. And tonight we're not going to have a lot of time to go into a lot of the theology of this, but we're going to just skim the surface and we can dive into these things later. And again, we're going to have a Facebook Live conversation uh, tomorrow night where we can go a little bit deeper into these things. But tonight we want to go to one of the main passages where Jesus covered this topic, and it's in Luke chapter 16. So if you have your Bibles, why don't you join me in Luke chapter 16. We'll start by reading this entire passage together. Uh, I'll read it out loud for you, and you guys can follow along as I read. We'll also uh, put it up on the screen, but I want to begin just simply by praying first. Let's pray together. God, as we consider this truth that everybody spends eternity somewhere, give us great understanding. God, give us great clarity. Give us great confidence. Give us great compassion. Help us, Lord, to see what is true and what is untrue. Help us, God, to adjust our lives then accordingly to those truths. God, I pray that you would lead us tonight into a deeper understanding of your word. God, that you would pray, uh, lead us into a deeper understanding of your character, who you are. And God, that you would lead us into a deeper relationship with you. And God, I pray that you would ignite a fire in our souls a passion to reach the lost for the Lord Jesus Christ. God, a passion as a church to storm the gates of hell and pull people from its grasp. 
God, as we have this conversation tonight, may you most of all be glorified in it. In your precious and holy name we pray, amen. In Luke chapter 16, starting in verse 19, we have the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Now again, let me just help you understand, remember, because context is key, where we are in the Bible, what goes on in here, and where this story comes from. We're in the book of Luke, which is one of four Gospels, and remember the four Gospels tell us about the birth, the life, the teaching, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus. Why are there four Gospels all about the same thing? It's just that important. It's repeated over and over and over again, the life of Jesus. So in the Gospels, we get a lot of what Jesus teaches word for word. And if you're reading in a Bible like mine, this passage in Luke chapter 16, starting in verse 19, is written in red. When you see red letters in your Bible, what does that mean? That means it's Jesus' exact words. It's a quote. It's a quote from Jesus, and so you're hearing it right from Jesus. When you get later on into the New Testament, and you're in Romans and letters and Ephesians and in in Colossians and James and in Revelation, those are words written by disciples of Jesus. They are the followers of Jesus that are then taking the truths of Jesus and laying them out for us. But in the Gospels, you have a lot of quotes. You have a lot of word-for-word conversations, and Jesus spoke a lot about Hell. And so in, in Luke chapter 16, we're in a season of teaching, and teaching, uh, Jesus had been teaching a group of people, including religious people, including Pharisees, including his own disciples, about money and wealth and how to deal with it. And so he gets through this conversation about money and wealth, and this is the context and where this story comes in. Now, there are two kinds of stories that Jesus told. Jesus often told true stories. We would call them autobiographical stories, stories uh, that, that actually took place. And then he would use those stories to kind of show us a truth or give us an example or shed some meaning or some light on a particular topic. In other times, Jesus used stories that were parables. They were heavenly stories. They were, they were made-up stories that had a earthly meaning. And a lot of times, how do you know when Jesus was telling a parable versus when he was telling a true story? What are, what are some of the cues and some of, the, some of the, the ways to kind of figure that out? Usually when Jesus talked about a parable, when he talked about a story that was more of a metaphor and it maybe didn't actually happen, but he was just drawing up a story for us to learn something from, he would say there was a person like or such as and, and he would use metaphorical language, and, and other people would ask him what it meant and what those characters represented and what they symbolized. And then he would go on to say, such and such symbolizes this or shows us this. And he would explain, and you realize, oh, this was a made-up story with characters that symbolize something else. When Jesus is telling a true story, he just matter-of-factly states the story. He names the characters. He gives specific places and locations, and he never talks about them as symbolizing something else necessarily. In Luke chapter 16, we have one of these places where we have to ask ourselves, is this a parable or is this a true story? And this is one of those spots where Jesus doesn't use language like there was a man like or such as or who represented. This is a story where he doesn't go on to say, hey, this symbolizes this and this symbolizes that. He treated this story, he treated these people as actual people going through actual events And that's a powerful thought. Could this be a parable? Could this be a fictional story that Jesus made up to give us a heavenly truth? It could be. It's it's possible. But it's more likely that this is a true story with real characters in it. And he names a character that we all know from the Old Testament, Abraham, in this story. So if this is a true story, and even if it's a parable, what is he trying to teach us? That's what we want to investigate tonight as we read it together. So, uh, follow along as I read. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and in fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came to lick this man's sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side, and the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off 
and Lazarus, the poor man, at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus, like a man, are bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm that's been fixed. In order that those who had passed from here to you may not be able, and none may be able to cross from there to us. And he said, the rich man who was in torment, Then I beg you, Father Abraham, to send him, Lazarus, to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that they may be warned, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. In this story, what we want to look at tonight for the time that we have together is we want to look at three truths about hell and one big question. Now, in my notes, I've rephrased this title. And in the Facebook live conversation that we're going to have, I've retitled it for Facebook land. We're talking about three truths I hate about hell. Three truths that I, Josh Park, cannot stand about hell. They bother me, they upset me, and they are heavy in my soul. But because of these three truths, we have to ask ourselves then one big question. So what are some of the things that we learn from this conversation between the rich man and Abraham? The first truth that we learn about hell that I hate is hell exists. Hell exists. It exists as a real place with a real location. It exists, and it's not a fictional story that's been made up to motivate people to do the things that they are supposed to do. This simple truth that hell exists is a truth that is under significant attack. There are many, many people, and I can understand why, who have rejected the truth that hell exists. And they don't want to consider it. But let me just talk to you a little bit more about what I've found and what I understand and why I believe that hell is a real place. I believe that hell is a real place because I believe that Jesus taught that hell was a real place. And then in this story where Jesus is communicating hell, he is talking about this as a real location. And in other places of the Bible, whether it's Jesus himself or whether it's followers of Jesus, they talk about hell as a real place. Now, if they didn't believe, if Jesus didn't believe hell was a real place, he would have said so. And here's why I say that. Back in Jewish culture, the existence of hell and the existence of a place of eternal torment was a common teaching. It's something that the religious leaders talked about. It's something that every good Jewish boy and girl would understand to be true. It was something that was a regular part of their conversation and their motivation as religious leaders, as a nation, and as a Jewish people. If Jesus didn't believe in something that religious people taught, he often told them they were wrong. He would tell them when they were, were making mistakes. He would confront them, and he would go after them, and he would make a big deal out of it. And then the religious leaders would get all upset, and they'd get all kind of huffy and puffy, and they would, would march and stomp, and they'd try to get mad at Jesus, and they'd try to re reject his teaching, and Jesus didn't, didn't, that didn't stop him. He always stood up for what he saw was true. In these conversations, whenever eternity comes up, whenever heaven or hell comes up, Jesus always refers to them as actual places. If he did not believe in a place called hell, Jesus would have said so. And on the other side, instead of rejecting it, instead of downplaying it, instead of brushing it aside, instead of correcting those teachers, he presented it as an actual place. He used it as a warning. He brought it up over and over and over and over again. When we look at this specific teaching, when you, kinda, when you start to dive into this story, you have the characters of the rich man and the poor man that Jesus introduces at the beginning of the story. One was ri ri uh, living a luxurious life. The other was in squalor and hanging out with the dogs and just getting food whenever he possibly could. Jesus introduces us to these two characters, and in the story, both of the characters die. 
I don't like to think about this. I don't like to consider it, and most people don't either. Have you ever thought about what would happen to you one minute after you die? What is the thing that happens the moment we stop living? If you want to break your your existence into two parts, it would be fair to say that you have the body and you have a soul. Your body is a temporary design. Your body is something that only exists for here and for now. Your body is what is broken by sin. It's why it gets sick. It's why it gets tired. Your body will eventually cease to exist. But your soul, your soul is designed to live eternally. Your soul is designed to be in existence forever. You were created, whether you believe in God or not, in the image of God. And God is an eternal being. He designed us to be eternal. That's why we're different from animals. That's why it's And again, please don't get upset with me here. It's probably not true that all dogs go to heaven. It's probably not the case. Because dogs were not made in the image of God. They were not designed to be eternal. And you're looking at me going, my dog has a soul. Listen, I've met dogs and cats especially that are soul searchers, man. They stare into you and you're like, wow, that, that takes me somewhere deep. But that doesn't mean they're eternal. Now, I'm, an, I'm a dog lover, so you're, you're talking to someone who loves dog. I have a dog. I just posted a picture of me and my dog this week. My dog's awesome and fantastic. Good news, the dog laid in the bed this week. Now, why is that good news? My wife has kicked the dog out of the bed for as long as I have known her. The dog has not been allowed in our bed. This week, I came upstairs. Jenny's working on the bed with her laptop, and the dog was in bed with her. This is a big moment in my life, people. I looked at her and said, I never thought I'd see the day. And she said to me, these are her exact words, we are not sleeping in this bed together. The dog is just resting. I'm like, uh-huh, right, progress. We're getting there. The dog, I don't think, is going to be in heaven. Here's how I solve that. I'll give you this nugget. Prayer is powerful, amen? Do you want your dog to be forever with you in heaven? Pray something like this. Dear God, you know I love my dog. You know I love my dog's past, present, and future. Dear God, I would love a carbon copy of my dog in heaven with me someday. Same memories, same fur, same excitement. And actually, God, get get rid of some of the bad things that I don't like about my dog, and I would like to have all the pets I've ever had. Does God, is God capable of answering that prayer? Can your dog be in heaven with you someday? Yes, sure. So don't get mad at me when I say all dogs don't go to heaven. All people have souls, and our souls will spend eternity somewhere. In Luke chapter 16 and verse 21, it said, The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. One minute, within the minute after the poor man died, he was in Abraham's side, heaven. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades he looked up. One minute after the rich man died, he found himself in Hades. What will happen to you one minute after you die? Where will you spend eternity? Where will your soul wake up after your body ceases to exist? The truth that we started our conversation with comes from this idea, everyone spends eternity somewhere. And this is why Christians are so weird. And this matters. And this makes an impact on every decision I make every day and every conversation I have and every time I pray. We'll get to more of that in a minute. So the first truth that I hate about hell is hell exists. The second truth that I hate about hell is hell is forever. Hell is a place of eternity, and we've already talked about why that is. I've been created in the image of God, and my soul has been created in that image. God is eternal being. I am also then an eternal being. But think about it along these lines from this particular story. Hell has no exit door. 
That's something that Michael Allen Rogers said when he was talking about Luke chapter 16. Hell has no exit door. And we can see this in the conversation between the rich man and Abraham. Abraham is saying, between us and you, a great chasm has been, what's that next word? Fixed. It's something that is in place. It's something that's not going to be removed in order that those who would pass here to you may not be able and none may cross. There was no way for the rich man to get out, yet he was not being consumed. The rich man, as he was in Hades, looked up. He used his eyes. He talked with a voice. He had a tongue that they wanted to put water on. He was existing forever in a flame that could not be sent away, that was not stopping. And when he talked about leaving, when he talked about going to another place, he was told by Abraham that this is impossible. Hell has no exit door. It's interesting as you do this study, and again, we'll just talk about this briefly, trying to understand this passage. There's a lot here, but the word for where the rich man is is called Hades. It's a little bit different than the word hell, which is sometimes used in other parts of the Bible, which is a little bit different than the word lake of fire, which you also hear talking about eternity. So how does all these things go together? If you jump to Revelation chapter 20, we see what happens with Hades and with the lake of fire and is summed up by the word that we often use to, to talk about them both, hell. In, in Revelation chapter 20, and this is talking about the end times, after, after the, the judgment has taken place and everyone's um, judgments are set, the devil who had deceived them, this is what's going to happen to the devil someday, the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the, and the false prophet were. These are all characters from the book of Revelation. And they will be tormented, these three, day and night, forever and ever. So the lake of fire was created for the devil, the beast, and the false prophet, and all of the devil's followers, the angels that we now would call or refer to as demons. They are submitting to God's judgment. They have no power over God. In the end, God's wins, and the devil and his followers are destroyed. They are thrown into the lake of fire where they be uh, tormented forever and ever. As this conversation goes on, a few minutes later, this location, this place called Hades comes up. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. If the rich man is in torment in Hades and Hades is thrown into the lake of fire, what happens to the rich man? Ultimately, he ends up in the same place that was designed for the devil and for the false prophet, the lake of fire. This is called the second death, the lake of fire. Hell is an eternal place of punishment. And it exists for eternity. It's a truth that I hate about hell. The third truth and the final truth that we'll talk about is hell is torment. Hell is torment. Sometimes when you have conversations with people and you bring up hell and, and they want to downplay it, they want to they talk about what it is and what it isn't, you'll say, ah, I don't mind about hell. Everybody I know is going to be there. We're going to have a great time and, and we'll just be together with all us other hellions. Listen, that is not the picture that is painted by Jesus and his followers about hell. Hell is a place of torment. Hell is a place of pain. Hell is a place of darkness. Hell is a place of seclusion and separation. Hell is a place that you want no one to go to. Not your best friend and not your worst enemy. That's why God condemns the statement of me telling someone else to go to hell. Jesus Christ gave his life. God gave his only begotten son so that people would not have to go there because it is such a horrible place. When you look at the words of the rich man, he says, I am in anguish. Being in torment, he lifted his eyes. Cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this place. If hell exists, if hell is forever, and if hell is torment, well then there's one big question we have to ask ourselves. What if it's true? What if it's true? What if this is an actual reality? 
What if this is a description of eternity for everyone who doesn't have personal faith in Jesus Christ? For the rest of our time together, I want to unpack some, some reactions to how, where do we go from here? Yes, I hate this. Yes, I don't like to talk about it, and I don't like to think about it. But if it's true, I must and I have to, and it changes everything. So the first question we ask after what it's true, we got to say, what about me? Are you here today, and will you ask yourself this question? Do I know with certainty that I'm saved? Do you, person sitting here in this auditorium right now, do you, person watching online, whether it's live or on a recorded video, know for certain that you are saved? Do you know for certain what will happen to you one minute after you die? And if you don't know for certain, please listen and lean in. You can know for sure that you will spend eternity in heaven with God as a part of the new heaven and new earth if you simply put your faith and trust in God. Let me ask you your story. What is it that you are trusting in right now for salvation? What is the thing that you are banking on for eternity? Are you banking on good works? Are you banking on being more of a good person than you are a bad person? Are you banking on religion and following a certain religious system? Are you just crossing your fingers and kind of hoping? I'm just going to ignore that. I'm not going to talk about it. Are you banking on this idea that everybody eventually is going to end up there in heaven and with God and all there's lots of roads leading to heaven? All of those things the Bible talks about as pathways to hell, not to heaven. There is one way to enter heaven, and that is by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Becoming a follower of Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Listen to this. No man comes to the Father but by me. Now I'm a little kid and some lady is telling me about hell in a small classroom and I am terrified. And I find myself in that conversation, in that moment, white knuckling the chair in front of me and she says, do you want to get saved? And I say, I absolutely want to get saved. I do not want to go to that place. Listen, I'm not up here tonight trying to give you an emotional knee-jerk reaction and trick you into following Jesus. But if the thought about hell has you considering your eternal state, then tonight, right now, wherever you are in this world, do some business with God and make sure. If you and I would sit down face-to-face and I would say to you, hey, what are you trusting in for salvation? Have you ever put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? Is there ever a moment in your life where you said, God, I'm in. God, I've decided to follow you. I want to accept the free gift of salvation. If you're here tonight and you're going, I'm not sure. I think I'm saved, but I'm, I'm, I just, I don't know if, I'm, if, I'm, if I am for sure. Uh, you know what? I, I have no idea. Then listen, take care of it now. This is too important. I probably said to Jesus a hundred times, God, if I'm not saved, save me. God, if I'm not saved, save me. Well, I, first, I first had a conversation with Jesus about salvation when I was six years old. Not until 10 years later, when in my, in my teen years, did I finally settle it. And every time a conversation about heaven and hell came up between six years old and 16 years old, I would get scared, I would get nervous, and I would have a conversation with God, and I would say, God, if I'm not saved, save me. God, if I'm not saved, save me. And I would go over it and over it and over it and over it until finally I rested on this one verse that we have up here on the screen in Romans 10, chapter 9. And this was a powerful moment for me as a young man. It says this, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, you, what's these words? Will be saved. Saved from what? Hell. Why does every person need salvation? What do we need to be saved from? Everyone is going to spend eternity somewhere. We need to be saved from hell. Are you safe? If you're not sure, tonight you can simply pray this prayer. God, I know I'm a sinner. And I believe that Jesus came and died for my sins and he rose again from the dead. And I accept the free gift of salvation. Come in to my heart 
and save me. I want to follow Jesus. If you pray that prayer, the words of the prayer don't save you. The belief in your heart and the confession with your mouth means that you are saved. No doubt, no worries about hell. From this moment on, if you are not sure, tonight you can make sure by simply having this conversation with God. If you have any questions about your own personal salvation, I do not want you to leave tonight without having a conversation about it. I'm going to make myself available here in the front of the auditorium after the service. We're going to have other prayer team members who will be here after the service. Please come up and talk with us and pray with us before you go. And we would love to answer any questions you have. It is just that important. After the service, Pastor Scott's going to be going over the three-circle conversation about the gospel right back in the corner for uh, 10 minutes after the service starts. If you're a part of Branch Life and you yet have not heard the introduction to this conversation, please be a part of that discussion after the service, and you can talk with Pastor Scott. This just simply tells us how to communicate the truth of the gospel in a lost and dying world. So the first question is, what about you? Are you certain you're saved? If you're not certain, please make sure tonight. The second question, if you know that you're a follower of Jesus, is what about them? What about them? Now, I am about to say the most controversial statement of the evening. And I've already said a couple of doozies. Now, here's the thing that I hope you will think about. Because I'm not even sure if I agree with myself. But here's, here's my theory that I'm going on. And as I get ready to say the statement, remember this thought. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, Jesus says, I, Jesus, will build my church, the church, and the gates of hell will not stand against it. The mission, the reason for the existence of the church, the thing that the church is supposed to be doing is storming the gates of hell, and when we storm the gates of hell, they will not be able to stand. That's, that's the mission of the church, to strengthen our connection to Christ and reach our world to tell people about Jesus so that they come to him. More and better disciples. Go into all the world and make disciples. That is our design. Jesus did not say that he is storming the gates of hell. He said he's building his church to storm the gates of hell. This is the thing we're supposed to be about. Why are the gates of hell still standing? I believe, I theorize, I think that excuses are the primary reason the gates of hell still stand. Why aren't more people coming to Jesus Christ? Why don't more people believe in him? Is it because our world is so dark? Is it because there's too much philosophy out there? Is it there because there's too much distraction? I believe that there are not more people coming to Jesus because of Christians who are making excuses to not storm the gates. Excuses are the reason the gates still stand. Is Jesus strong enough to tear down the gates of hell? Can God at any moment smash through that place and rescue everyone? Absolutely he can, but he has chosen to use the church to do it. So why are the gates of hell still standing? Because of excuses. What is our response, Christian, tonight to these three truths that I hate about hell? Tonight I want to ask you to recognize and repent of excuses. Recognize and repent of excuses for not reaching more people for Jesus, for not having more conversations about the gospel, for not praying every day for people who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, their personal Savior, for not caring about people who are going to spend eternity in hell. We need to recognize that we have excuses that we have been building up into our lives, and they are excuses that I have used and excuses that you have used on a regular basis to quiet our conversation about Jesus. So let's recognize these in our soul because you are under attack for excuses. We've asked you over the course of the last month to be praying about who's your one. Who's one person that you could pray for, that you could invest in, and that you could invite to Christ? How's it going? Have you prayed every day? I haven't. And I'm the pastor. Something has happened in my life that has caused me not to pray on some days about people that I say I care about. 
Have you shared the gospel yet? Have you given an invitation? Have you written a letter? Have you blessed someone and done something kind in the name of Jesus? Why not? Have you invited someone to church? Have you brought someone into your home? Why not? The answer is going to be an excuse. Here's some of the top 10 excuses that I thought of as I prayed through this conversation today. We need to recognize that sometimes we are just spiritually apathetic. We don't care about spiritual things like we're supposed to. We're not in God's word. We're not faithful in prayer. We think about church as an option, and sometimes if it comes to church in a football game, I go to the football game, and that's an apathetic response to spiritual life. When I'm supposed to be all in for God, I need to be all in in my spiritual life, in my spiritual growth, in my spiritual pursuit, and in my spiritual community. And when I get apathetic about spiritual things, I lose the reality of hell in the lives of my neighbors. We need to recognize and repent of a lack of prayer. Man, we could pray more and pray better for people on a regular basis. We need to recognize and repent of a disbelief in hell. Man, if we actually, actually put ourselves into a place where we pictured this horrible, awful truth and said, but by the grace of God, I would be there. And but by the grace of God, those people that I interact with on a regular basis could go there someday. If I just, it's easier to say, no, it's probably not real. We need to repent of that. If you need a resource to help you in this conversation, if you're not sure about hell and its realness, I want to encourage you to grab this book called Erasing Hell. This is a book written by Francis Chan. It's a resource that we'll post for you. It's a response to a pretty popular pastor in the last 10 years who said hell didn't exist. And Francis Chan said, you know what? We need to have a conversation about whether or not it's actually real. If this is your excuse for not telling people about Jesus, please get a hold of this book and wrestle with the theology of hell. We need to recognize and repent of the excuse of busyness. I just don't have enough time. I forgot. We need to repent of the fear of rejection. That means we care more about ourselves than we care about the person we're trying to share Jesus with. Recognize and repent of the excuse about losing the habit of witnessing. And yes, it should be a habit in our lives. Losing the heart for others. Is there anybody in this world that you don't like? (laughs) I mean, you just can't stand them. They're super annoying. And maybe they're mean, and maybe they're cranky, and maybe they smell funny, and you just could care less what happens to them. That means you've lost the heart for others. Never, never lose a heart for another person. Recognize the failure to invite. Recognize the disinterest in helping the poor. This entire conversation was couched in a rich man and a poor man's conversation. And we as Christians should be motivated to help the poor recognize and repent as a church as not being intent on reaching the lost. More comfortable for me if I'm not all about trying to reach other people. What about them? What about them? Charles Spurgeon said this, If sinners be damned, at least let them leap into hell over our dead bodies. If they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees. And if hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions. Let no one go unaware, unwarned, or unprayed for. No one. Who is your one? Who are you reaching for the gospel? Who are you praying for? Who are you investing in? Who are you blessing? And who are you inviting into a personal relationship with Jesus. It doesn't have to be just one, but who's your one right now that you are gonna leave it all on the field to tell about the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. I am thrilled at the stories I've heard over the course of this last week of at least three of you in this room who have had a gospel conversation with your one. Awesome, way to go. One happened in a hospital room, one happened in a restaurant, and one happened in a dorm room, in a classroom. Way to go. Let's keep it up. Who's your one? Let's have these conversations because what about them? You know, I want to end the time that we have together on more of a positive note and a little bit of a brighter shadow and, and give you guys some hope. 
I am praying for Branch Life Church as we build that we would build as a multi-generational, multicultural church. A, a church that's a lot of colors and a lot of ages. A church that's just able to speak a lot of different languages and connect with a lot of different people. I'm thankful that we have senior saints in our church and I'm thankful that we have uh, uh, young people in our church. I'm thankful that we have people that have just come to the Lord and know him as personal savior and I'm thankful that we've had people that have been saved for, for 70 or 80 years in our church. I think that's awesome. And we can learn from each other. So I've asked some of our older team members to come up for a little bit of an interview. So would you please welcome Rich and Sue Geis up to the platform. Rich and Sue, if you guys could come on up here, we would love to have you. Go ahead and give them a round of applause. They are well past their 30s, all right? So, you know, they're just a little bit, but just a little bit past their 30s, and uh, they've, they've come graciously to allow me to interview them. Uh, this evening. We're going to ask them three questions, and they don't each have to answer these three questions, uh, but one or the other. I believe this is on, test one, two. So just when you ask, uh, answer the question, just talk into the microphone. Uh, first, tell us your names and uh, where you're from. I am Suzanne Geis, and we live in Limerick. Me too. <laughs> Suzanne, it's good to have you. Yeah, so glad. <laughs> okay, okay, my name's Rick. Okay, Rick. Uh, all right, so here's three questions that I'm going to interact with. You can see them back there on the back screen. Who led you to Christ? And then we're going to ask you, tell us about a, the last time or a recent time where you led someone to Christ. And then the last question we want to hear are, what are some ways you've kept active in reaching people for Jesus throughout your life as a habit? So the first question, and again, you don't both have to answer one or the other. Uh, who led you to Christ? Just tell us that story. Mike, real close. We started going to uh, Calvary Baptist, and um, Joe DeCanlo was the preacher, and he was really an evangelist. And um, we actually went there six months before I accepted the Lord because I thought there was no way that God would ever save me. I'm thinking, oh, no, this, and then I would have to change my life, and what would all these people say that, that I'm a Christian, and they, they would question, she's a Christian? So it took me six months, and it was through Joe DeCanlo's church. Now, about what year was this? Oh, my. 1981. 1981. 1981. Long time. I'm old. So you were like seven years old when that happened? Oh. Five and a half. <laughs> Four or five. So 1981 came to the Lord through the ministry of Joe. How did you hear about the church? Do you remember that? Oh, my. Yes. Um, we didn't really hear about it. Um, God literally brought it to us. Rick had cancer, and we stopped going to church. And so after his cancer, we laid in bed, and we talked about um, we should probably go back to church but we didn't know where we should go. So we started praying every night, Lord, send us wherever you want us to go, send us wherever you want us to go. And so he got up one morning, and we had studied with Jehovah Witnesses. So going to church now was very confusing for me. So he got up one morning, and he said, I'm going to go to church. And I said, you are? And he goes, yeah, I'm going to go to church. And I said, oh, okay. So he goes, I don't go. So when he came back and he told me that he was headed to one church and got to the bottom of the road and something led him to this other church. And so when I asked him what church it was, he said it was a Baptist church. And I went, oh, a Baptist church. Ricky, I am not rolling on the floor and yelling hallelujah. So, one of those kind of Baptist churches. One of yeah, yeah. those kind. I thought it was going to be. Um, so it it took a while for us to be saved. But the I must tell you this very quickly. When we accepted the Lord, our son was at that point uh, 15, and he wasn't with us. And of course, he had been going also. And when we told him we got saved, he was so excited, and he went then the next Sunday and ran down the aisle. Wow. And I said to him, your children are really watching you. I said to him, Kev, if you were that convicted, 
why didn't you just accept the Lord? He said, I wanted to make sure I was watching you and you and dad. Wow. So our children really do keep their eyes on us. Let me ask you the second question. Tell us about the last time or recent time that you've led someone to Christ. Well, sorry to say the last time I led somebody to Christ was many years ago. It was our next door neighbor on his, just about his deathbed. Uh, we had talked to him before, but it was just at the point where he knew that he was going into eternity soon. And uh, He cries. <laughs> the last time I led someone to the Lord was two weeks ago. And um, a young woman, I had led her mommy and her daddy, uh, excuse me, her mommy, her grandma, and grandpa to the Lord years ago. And, and they had started to go to church. And this child started hearing um, through the pastor salvation. So the mother called me and said, she's really questioning Sue. Would you, would you talk to her? And I said, well, of course. So we had quite a lengthy conversation, and then I asked her if she had questions, and she had a few, and then I finally asked her, I said, how do you feel about this, Kendall? Is this something that you want to settle now in your life and accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And she said, oh, yes. So that was just a couple weeks ago. But my thing is that you spoke about tonight is prayer. Um, I pray um, a lot about bringing people into my life that I can share the good news with. I think when I got saved, I was immediately um, challenged in my heart. Whenever I met anybody, I was concerned. I wonder if they know Jesus. And then I would find, I would talk with them and find out a need because everybody has a need. And then I would say to them, well, I don't have the answer for that, um, but I know who does. And, and that's my Lord and my Savior. And that would open the conversation that, that I could talk to them about. So I, I think the biggest thing for me is uh, prayer, that I pray that God will put people in my path. Um, just let a... <laughs> Um, a guy that came to um, do our bugs around our house, and then another one. So you don't have to go out, you know, on the streets to lead people to Christ. Um, you start praying, Christ will bring them to you. Yeah, amen. And so um, just pray that for openings, and, and the opening would be a person's need, you know, as you're talking to them. We all have needs. And so then you just explain that you don't have the answer, but you know who does. So you led someone to Christ in the last couple of weeks. That's awesome. I think that's something we celebrate here at okay. Branch Life. That's awesome. A new it's life just, in Christ. I think it has to be, has to be a, a heart. Yeah. You have to. I can remember when I first got saved, I had such a passion to tell people about Christ. I would look at people and I think, oh, I wonder if they know Jesus. If they don't know Jesus, they could die and go to hell. So then I would ask the Lord, I'd pray and ask the Lord to give me an opportunity to talk with them. I'm telling you, you start praying and asking the Lord to bring people into your life, into your path. He'll bring them. He'll bring them. But you have to be ready and you have to be willing. So you answered this, uh, the last question with a couple of those strokes. But just are there anything that you've done individually or as a couple to keep this at the forefront of your lives as a habit, regularly engaging and witnessing? It just happens I have that answer in my pocket. <laughs> and that's Woofy, missionary puppy. And this is how we reach, like, just like you said, the exterminator kept sending different, uh, different workmen there. And each time we have an opportunity to witness to them, and we'd also give them a Woofy. And this explains the plan of salvation. If you notice our car, we have it on our car. I'm always wearing jackets, which she yells at me because, don't you have anything besides a woofy jacket? But, you know, it's just a way, a, a, an innocent way to approach somebody, explain the wordless salvation to them. And um, so I just really appreciate it. My wife came up with this. Uh, and actually, we, got, I, we both got saved through uh, hearing Gary Gilmore was an evangelist, traveling evangelist, and he was at uh, Pastor... Uh, Pastor Joe's church, and we were challenged, and we, we went there to all the meetings for a whole week until we finally uh, 
went forward and accepted Christ. And it's just a, but that is the main way. I, I, I'm retired now and I work for myself for the last uh, 15 years of my life, so I didn't meet anybody. Uh, so I'm really restricted, but I always usually carry a woofie around with me. If I see a need, I'll give one, give one out. Uh, and it's just a way to, to break the ice. Uh, even if we, we are traveling, uh, we'll get, leave them at a restaurant with a waitress and be able to share the gospel. So there's always many ways that, and like I said, he's, he's not intimidating. And uh, these aren't made anymore. This is our own private little one, <laughs> uh, which the kids love, but we have a full-size one. So when did, when did Woofie start? Um, 2005, Woofie started. Um, I, I, had, um, I had colon cancer and through prayer, because um, it was very, very serious, and um, I didn't know if I was going to live or die. So um, I said to the Lord, if it be your will that I live, I'd love to serve you in whatever capacity you want me to. And it's a very long, involved story, but I'm here, what, 20 years later. And right after that, I had a pastor friend have an aneurysm burst in his stomach. And I had nicknamed him Wolfie because he fell in love with my girlfriend. He was like a lovesick puppy. So he was very ill. So I went to a store, bought a puppy, named it Wolfie, laid it on his bed, and said, Bob, every time you look at this puppy, just remember that God loves you. And we were headed back to Romania on our missions trip. And I don't, God knows why now, but uh, I thought, you know, I could, I could take that dog. I didn't even know what I was going to do with the dog. So I went back to Bob and asked him if I could borrow the dog. And it was, um, he yelled at me. Now he's 65. And I wasn't taking his dog. And I'm thinking, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> he wants his flush dog. So anyway, he finally gave it to me, and um, I took it, and then on the airplane, I'm praying, like, what are you going to do with one dog and all these children? So it came to me, Woofie, Woofie, the missionary puppy. That's it. He could be a missionary. Now, what do I do with one dog? So then I began to pray again, and I prayed that God would give me a story of how he became a missionary so the story instantly came, and I turned to him, and I said, hey, honey, listen to the story that God just gave me. And he said, oh, tell the kids when you get there. So we told the kids, had a salvation message, and um, we had one dog, and we would pass the dog, and I would tell them to pass the dog on, but whoever got the puppy never passed the puppy on. So that's on the way home. I said to him, you know, I, I, should, I should get more of these puppies and, and give more of these puppies out. The children seem to love them. So very long story. We were going to get 400. We ended up getting 6,500. We took our retirement money, thought we'd have puppies till we were 90. And that 6,500, no stores, no nothing except God's will and guidance. Um, 6,500 went. And uh, people told people because he has the plan of salvation. And a lot of times people um, are afraid to share, but they're not afraid to share a puppy that's got the salvation message. So he became a plant, just a seed to plant. So then we got 17,000 in a container and another. So now there's 70,000 of them around the world. And this, this is nothing more than prayer and God's grace. He can do this for Rick and I. He can do anything for all of you. You just have to have a heart. When you look, at, I would look at people and immediately I would think, I wonder if they're saved. If they're not, oh, they'll go to hell. Lord, help me. Some way, open up a conversation. So you have to have that passion inside of you that when you look at people, you look at them wondering, if they die, are they going to go to heaven or are they going to go to hell? And you start praying that, and, and I'm telling you, doors will open. Doors so will open. one puppy on a trip to Romania has turned into over 70,000 puppies that have been spread around the world, all just as gospel tracks. So yes. it's, a, it's a stuffed animal that's a gospel track that you can share. And when somebody buys one, there's a second one that gets given away. Yes. 
Yes, yep. and we have like a, a bank now, and right. like your church gets gets and they and you guys we'll do post need some more. information on that if it's something you can use i've used i've taken wolfie's yes. to the hospital i've shared with kids i've shared with their parents we've left them in there and i've just been able to tell people about the gospel that's just something that god laid on your heart as regular old people you weren't in the puppy business you weren't in the plush toy business you weren't in the track business but you were in the saving of souls business that's all i cared about yep. was leading people to christ and and he just gave us this beautiful puppy. The it, tag says, Wolfie brings you a hug in the message of God's love. Precious are the feet who bring the good news. Follow my tracks to Jesus. When you open it up, there it is, the paw prints. Yellow is for God. Black is for sin. Red is for the blood of Jesus. It's the salvation message. So when you give this, you're giving a plush track. Yeah. So give them a big hand. Thank you guys for sharing with us. That's for us. Awesome. If you have any questions or would like to talk to Rick, uh, Rick and Sue, they'd be love to talk with you and team up with you and, and uh, help you share the gospel. So tonight, uh, we hope that you guys have uh, been a little bit motivated, inspired by uh, the truths that we've shared from Scripture. We're going to talk about some more truths that I hate about hell uh, tomorrow night on Facebook Live and uh, share this conversation with more people. I want to give you a chance just to respond on your cards, and we'll be closing out our service. Uh, uh, go ahead and interact with these cards. We're going to ask you guys to turn these in. Uh, in the days, in, in the next couple of minutes. But we listed a bunch of excuses about why we are not storming the gates of hell. Which excuses are the ones that are most likely to keep you from uh, reaching people for Jesus? What is it in your heart and your soul and mind that you wrestle with the most? Now, remember, here's, here's some of these excuses. Which one is the one that's most challenging for you. And go ahead and write that on the card and write it as a prayer of confession. You don't have to write these words, but if you write busyness down, what you are saying is, God, I am confessing of using busyness as an excuse. Please forgive me for using this excuse for reaching people and help me to do better in the future. And it may be something that's not even on this list. Maybe your excuse for not reaching people is not represented just confess that before the Lord. Be broken about it in your spirit. Take it to God and say, no more excuses. I'm reaching people for Jesus. And then start praying. Who's your one? If you haven't yet filled out the name of the person that you are praying for, go ahead and put that on your card tonight. We will add that to our prayer list, not their whole name, just their first name, and we'll connect that to them. And we hope that you guys will be regularly investing in people, even this week, for the name of Jesus. What's the one thing you could do this week for your one to help them in their relationship with Jesus? As the team comes out to lead us in worship, I'm going to pray. Then they'll play uh, just quietly on the piano for a couple more minutes as you fill out the card. And then they'll lead us in one more song. And then we'll close our service with some welcome gifts to new core team members. Let's pray together. Dear God, Heavenly Father, as we investigate in our spirits how you would use us in the days and weeks and years ahead to build your church, to reach people with the good news of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, to storm the gates of hell and pull people from its grasp, help us to be a church that prays first and regularly by name for people that don't know you as personal Lord and Savior. God, I pray that there would be no one in the Pottstown area that doesn't go unprayed for. God, that we would regularly be taking people's names to, to the throne and presenting them before you and asking God for you to lead them to yourself. And God, I pray that uh, you would use each person who's a part of Branch Life in this next year to reach one person with the gospel of the good news of Jesus Christ to help see them take the step of baptism and to become a part of your church. And God, we pray, we pray that you would move mightily in our place and in our town, rescuing people from an eternity separated from you. God, if there's any here today that don't know for certain or they're not saved, we pray, God, that even in these moments as we pray to you now, you would lead them to yourself. With every head bowed and every eye closed, we ask the question during the service, are you certain? Today, I just want to ask, pointed right here in this moment, in this time, what about you? What about you? Is tonight the night that you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? What about you listening online or to the recording? Is now the moment that you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? And if you're here and you're not sure, is now the moment where you make sure? Make sure that, that you're all in. 
If you're here tonight and you're not sure if you're saved, you're not saved, but tonight's the night. You would like to make sure, or you have made sure, you've prayed that prayer with us. Would you indicate that to me right now just by raising your hand? Pastor Josh, I'm not sure, but I'd like to be sure. Or tonight I prayed for salvation. Is there anybody here that would raise their hand and raise that high? What about you? Are you sure? If you're online and you're responding in this moment, you can jump to the website, www.branchlife.church. You can go to the gospel page and you can fill out an online, uh, uh, an online blank and let us know that, that you prayed for salvation. We'd love to know that you did that. And if you want to respond in your cards here live, you can do that and let us know that you prayed for salvation. And if you are saved, have you been baptized yet? It's time. It's time for you to follow with that. And, and believer, let's cover who's your prayer, who's your one in prayer. God, Heavenly Father, we hate hell, and we know that you hate it too. But God, we have a great hope in you that you have conquered death, you have conquered hell, and that you have provided a way for all of those who believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. So God, we thank you. We rest in you. We hope in you, and we delight in you. And God, we can't wait to see how you will move in this church and in this town and this place for your glory as we go about the business of reaching people in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray.